Before we start today's episode, I wish to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. I pay my deepest respect to Elders past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. I acknowledge the Ghana people as the custodians of the Adelaide region, and consider myself incredibly lucky to live, work, and raise a family on Ghana land. everyone and welcome to the Truth About Aging podcast. I'm your host, Kate Helmore. Each week we'll be unpacking your questions about the aged care sector, discussing how to age well, grow old and make informed decisions. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Truth About Aging podcast. Today's episode is all about dignity of risk in the context of dementia. So if you didn't listen to episode 74, feel free to jump back to that one. But that was really explaining what dignity of risk is, how we apply that framework to our loved ones, and how we can really get alongside them to help make some of these decisions together, highlight some of the risks, and ultimately respect those decisions that they make when it comes to their own choices about their health and safety. What I did mention in that episode is a bit of a caveat is for people living with dementia or those with cognitive impairments. There does come a time at which it is important, particularly if you are a nominated substitute decision maker, but there is a constant balance between the right to autonomy and independence and the balance of that within a duty of care. So that's what I really wanted to unpack today. Now, to set a little bit of context about dementia, as most of us probably know, it is an incurable and progressive neurodegenerative disease that currently impacts 421,000 Australians, which is probably even more than I realized. Of those 421,000 individuals, two in three of those people are living in the community. So a lot of what I'll be talking about today is in the context of people caring for their loved ones within the community. One of the big things that happens for people living with dementia is that there can be a lot of stigma attached to that. People assume that maybe once you have a diagnosis of dementia that you're not capable of looking after yourself anymore, that you're dependent on somebody else to make decisions for you. And it can really become a roadblock to us actually focusing on the abilities that they have, the strengths they have, and their own right to autonomy and taking risk. Whilst individuals living with dementia may start to lose some abilities when it comes to performing familiar tasks, they might start to have difficulty cooking, they might struggle doing their own banking, they might not be able to drive any longer. It's really important that we always look at the things that they can do and how we can help work with them to constantly balance this right to autonomy with our duty of care. Now, from the get-go, I do just want to do a little shout-out to the National Dementia Hotline. Their number is 1-800-100-500. Full disclosure, I am not a, a specialist in dementia at all. I am quite a generalist in my practice, and this is information that I often speak to about with my clients. But if you have really specific scenarios, please speak to someone, whether it's your GP, whether it's the National Dementia Hotline. This advice that I'm sharing today is really quite general in nature. It's not to be taken literally applied to your situation. 
It is more just trying to build a bit more context in how we have these discussions and how we apply dignity of risk to those living with dementia. So first of all, I think it's important to outline what decision-making capacity means, or I guess more importantly, what impaired decision-making capacity means. So the Office for the Public Advocate say if you have impaired decision-making capacity, you may not be able to understand some or all of the information that is relevant to a decision. You might not be able to understand the consequences of a decision. You might not be able to remember the relevant information, even for a short time. You might not be able to use that information to make your decision. And you might not be able to communicate your decision to others in some way. So these are some of the flags that someone might have impaired decision-making capacity. It should also be noted that sometimes for people living with dementia, they may have capacity in some areas more than others. Just because you're not capable of making one particular decision doesn't mean that you can't make decisions in any area of your life. This often looks like for the Office of the Public Advocate in particular, when they're looking at guardianship orders, they might say, look, you're actually maybe struggling a little bit with managing your own finances and looking after your banking. But we can see you make great decisions when it comes to your activities of daily living and looking after your own health. So that is still all within your wheelhouse to keep making decisions. But we might just have someone take on that more financially administrative role. So important to understand that it's not a blanket across the board. Once you are deemed to not have decision making capacity in one area, you can still have it in a number of others. Now, there's a few things to consider when you are making decisions for a loved one, or this is also in the context of if you do have a formal substitute decision maker, whether that be through an advanced care directive, whether that be you have a guardian through the office of the public advocate, anytime someone is making decisions for a loved one who is deemed to not have capacity, there's a couple of really key things to look at. The first one that I think is the most important is that the person's likes, wishes, and values are more important than doing what might appear to be the best outcome for the person. So what this means is that it's really important for that substitute decision maker to put themselves in that person's shoes and try and make a decision that they would have made for themselves if they could still make that decision. So I'll give you a little example. Let's say you have a loved one living independent in the community, has quite advanced dementia, but is still able to live on their own. They've got a community of people around them, their neighbors, the local shopkeepers that help keep a bit of an eye out for them. They are no longer able to prepare meals for themselves. So they used to go to the fish and chip shop once a week, but now they actually go every night. They walk on down to the shop down on the corner, they get their fish and chips, their can of Coke, and they go home and watch the footy at night. Now, as a substitute decision maker, looking at that person's ability to prepare meals for their nutrition, you would be having a look at making a decision in their best interest. So what we'd be looking at is that person's history, their values, and their past lifestyle. So what you know with that person is they've actually always loved going and having fish and chips. It's something that they really enjoy. They've never been someone who super prioritized their health and they just really enjoy being able to sit on the couch on a Friday night and watch the footy with a can of Coke and with their fish and chips. 
So what we know is that that decision is in line with their past history, their past lifestyle, and is it doing any immediate harm to them or putting their safety at risk? No, it's not. Arguably, there are some longer-term health impacts of eating fish and chips every day, but are they fed? Is it keeping them alive? Yes, it is. And it's not causing any detrimental, immediate detrimental impact. So that's something you can feel quite comfortable making for them saying, you know what, that's working for them. Let's just maybe make sure that the fish and chip owner will start a tab there where we can pay the bill each week so that your loved one doesn't have to worry. They might have forgotten to take money down there every now and then. So we'll sort it out with them and have our own arrangement on the side. But that works for them. So we're going to keep going with it. The second thing to keep in mind when you're making decisions for a loved one are the decisions which are least restrictive. So normal people want to protect someone who might be at risk of harm. And particularly when we're talking about vulnerable persons, whether that be someone just generally aging or somebody living with dementia, it can be really easy to want to protect them, to want to make decisions to minimize any risk to them. But again, We want to balance this against their own values, their own attitudes, and their own behaviors. So one example of this might be, you might have somebody, it might be your auntie, loves going for a walk around the block every afternoon. She's always been pretty active. She's always loved that sense of community. She knows everyone. Everyone knows her name and she knows everybody. She knows what they're up to and what's going on. She's been doing this lap around the block for the last 15 years and it's her favorite thing to do. Now, as her dementia progresses, there might be an increased risk of falls, of maybe her wandering, of maybe something else happening to her while she's out on that walk every afternoon. So what we'd be weighing up then is this freedom versus safety mindset of that is something that's really important to her. It's always been something really important to her. So is that something that they could still do? Look, probably. We're looking at decisions which are least restrictive of rights. The alternative to that is you keep her locked up in the house, and that is incredibly restrictive of her rights. And what I'll talk about down the track in this episode is maybe some of the protective things that we can put around that decision to help keep them a little safer while still giving that autonomy to go, that's really important to you. So therefore, we're not going to restrict those rights. You keep going for your walk, and I'm going to do some other things to buffer that within your community. There's a wonderful presentation that I found doing some research for this by the geriatrician Susan Curl. It's titled Maximizing Opportunities and Reducing Risk for People Living with Dementia. And this really looked at the fact that we are an incredibly risk-averse society. I think just personally, anecdotally, I think we do it a lot with young children and we do a lot with older people maybe just vulnerable groups of people, suddenly we feel this real need to take away any risk or make sure that they just can't get hurt or harmed or nothing can go wrong for them. And what a lot of this presentation looked like is some of those key areas for risk for people living with dementia and how we can help balance that for them with that freedom and keeping, you know, that balance of duty of care and freedom at all times. Now, driving is a massive one, and I know I touched on this in the last episode, but I have had many clients in the past refer to it like losing a limb. The idea of losing their license is like losing a limb, and it's a massive fear for a lot of people. 
It also doesn't mean that because you're diagnosed with dementia, therefore you can no longer drive. A lot of these things are gray area. A lot of these things is a continuum. And the best way to keep a a balanced approach to this is to keep checking in over time. The decision that you make at one point in time isn't necessarily the one that stays for good. I think the best outcomes I see for people living with dementia in the community are where their caregivers, most likely with the support of maybe their home care package provider or Dementia Australia or their geriatrician or doctor, but they have regular check-ins about how their loved one is going and what maybe the next steps of looking after them are, but not just immediately putting in so many barriers for that person just because they have a diagnosis of dementia. So there was a longitudinal study of people with mild dementia in 2008, and what they found is that driving was a really important factor in maintaining the autonomy of older people. Many of the people with dementia passed their driving assessment at baseline, and they continued driving for extended periods of time. Monash University did a systematic review in 2010 that examined the crash risk of people with medical conditions. So those conditions were anything from alcohol dependency, dementia, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, psychiatric disorders, schizophrenia, sleep apnea, cataracts. And what they found was that the risks associated with young drivers and alcohol impaired drivers overwhelmed all of the medical condition groups to such an extent that medical risks seem relatively minor. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to have an accident if you're driving with dementia, but it is to say that I think sometimes we can blow these things out to think that people that are over a certain age shouldn't be driving anymore, when really, maybe we should be looking at people driving under a certain age or looking at things like alcohol prevention programs and things like that with younger drivers, because there's clearly a lot of evidence to suggest that that is the biggest group of people that are having accidents not necessarily people living with dementia. So the Australian Road Guidelines also say that you can have a conditional license if you are diagnosed with dementia. So a conditional license often means that you have like special conditions. So it might be things like you can only drive outside of school hours. You might only be allowed to drive certain places or at certain times or maybe on private property. As part of that conditional license, you have an annual review and that takes into account the nature of the driving task, information about your impairment and the impact on your driving, results of a practical driving assessment if required, and also an opinion from an appropriate specialist may be considered. So they're really going to look holistically at where are you wanting to drive? What is the impact of your condition at this point in time? Are there any specialists that have an opinion about whether this is safe or not? And if it is still feasible, then yes, you can absolutely keep your license with dementia. What they do flag and I think makes sense is that this should probably be the beginning to transitioning to someone else driving as well, starting to have conversations about those non-driving services. Can family sometimes transport you places? Can you utilize taxis? Could you use your home care package and care provider to drive you places as well? Finding these in-betweens can be quite helpful where it might be Totally fine to still drive to the shops or to the post office or do your banking. But maybe when we're driving further distances, we have family take you or we organize your home care package to come. They also talk about the importance of encouraging self-limiting of driving. Maybe you don't drive at night. Maybe you don't drive anywhere that goes 100 k's an hour. 
And also looking at surrendering your license or retiring from driving when the time comes. Obviously, that's not possible in every situation. Sometimes people will hold on to that license for dear life and there is no way of them parting with it. But ultimately, if you can reach a place where they are willingly, not even willingly, but they are surrendering that license themselves, it's a much more peaceful place to get to with it. So driving and dementia, absolutely still possible. Constantly weighing up that risk with their current condition and what that looks like, but it doesn't mean it's a definite no. Now, in regards to activities of daily living, there's so many household activities that could be considered dangerous with or without dementia. I have an almost two-year-old and I can guarantee you there's many things that happen around the house that she is not necessarily safe around. I also burn myself on the stove or on my hair straightener or sometimes forget to lock the back door. There's things that we all do when it comes to house safety, but there's particular things to keep in mind, again, monitoring as your condition goes, but making sure that there are some checks and balances in place to help care for people and help keep them independent within the community. So there's certain things you can do to safety-proof the home. So these could be things like, say someone loves ironing. Can't say I'm that person, but say they do. You might look at getting an iron with a timer and an auto off switch so that there's no risk of them leaving the iron on and walking away from it. If you have a gas stove, maybe that's no longer safe. Maybe you look at having a portable electric stove with a timer on it so that that also goes off after a period of time. This is probably a really good point to say occupational therapists are, I mean, there are no words for how fantastic they are, (laughs) but OTs that specialize in the aged care space have such a wealth of knowledge and resources available for people living with dementia at home. If you have a home care package, I highly recommend you organize an OT assessment in the house just to look at what aids and equipment there might be out there or what strategies there are that could potentially help keep you at home for longer and minimize some of those risks while still promoting that autonomy and independence to do tasks on your own. If someone loves going out walking, like we were talking about before, it might be a matter of having an ID bracelet or name tags on your clothes. You might speak with your neighbors and with businesses in the local area to make them aware that, hey, around about two o'clock in the afternoon, Auntie Susie's going to go for a walk. So if you see anything unusual or if you're worried about her at all, here's my mobile number. Give me a call. You might look at electric monitoring through something like a GPS tag or through your phone. Maybe if it was getting really quite advanced, they could start participating in a walking group instead. There's lots of different solutions that you can look at, but lots of aids and equipment that can go alongside this as well. When it comes to falls, people with dementia are twice as likely to have a fall as people without. Things like exercise are fantastic to reduce the risk of falls. You might look at accompanied walking. You could look at walking aids, protective clothing, But one of the big ones is also just removing environmental hazards. If you know your backyard has lumps and bumps from tree roots over the years and the bricks have come up and there's also a bit of a trip hazard around the corner where one of your pots fell over a while ago and you never got to it, removing some of those hazards is a great way of minimizing some of that risk. They can still get out in the garden and go around, repot the pot plants every other day, water them six times a day if they need to, whatever it is, that can still happen. Let's just look at minimizing the risk of falls rather than taking that out as an option entirely. Now, intimate relationships could have an entire episode on its own, so I'll try to keep this brief. 
But I think it's important to remember that disallowing expression of sexuality is an infringement on human rights in itself. Just because someone is living with dementia doesn't mean that they don't need to express themselves sexually, that they don't need to still have sexual intimacy or relationships, and that will look different for every individual. It does whether you have dementia or not. One of the issues that can come up for people living with dementia or something that I find families often worry about is in the context of consent. And you probably see this more within residential care facilities than you do in the community, but there can be this fear that maybe they don't know what decision they're making, or maybe they're not, they're being pressured into something that they might not otherwise want to. Most people can indicate their wishes, and it might be, again, this balance between autonomy and risk of exploitation. It might be having conversations about their sexual expression. It might be conversations just to gauge how are they understanding this? Are they able to express what they do want, what they don't want? Are they also practicing these things safely? There's a number of things to consider within this, and I think we can sometimes shy away from this conversation because... Who knows why, but the idea of people in their 70s, 80s, 90s still being interested in sex suddenly seems like something we can't talk about. Such a taboo topic. It happens and people still have needs. So again, balancing this right to freedom, to autonomy, to independence with still being aware of some of those risks is really important. And I think having conversations around that is a really good starting point. There are also, obviously, as I touched on before, so many things to weigh up when it comes to their ability to administer their own medications. Alcohol consumption is a really tricky one and one that I see a lot, particularly in the community. People are allowed to choose when they want to have a drink. If you want to have a beer at 10 a.m. in the morning, good on you. If maybe you are having so many beers throughout the day that you are at an extreme risk of falls by night, Maybe that's something we want to start looking at. Is there a way that that can be tailored or maybe weaned back a bit? But again, this is in the context of people's lives. Have they always been someone that has consumed a large amount of alcohol? You're unlikely to change it just because they have dementia. Different story if this is someone who never really used to drink that much. They now have dementia and keep forgetting that they've already had one glass, two glass, three glasses, four glasses. That's a little bit different. But if this is someone who has a lifelong alcohol dependency and it's continued as their dementia progresses, it's a little bit of a trickier one to navigate. But I think sometimes our immediate reaction can be to determine what's best and go, no, we're going to take all alcohol out of the house. It's not happening. And maybe something more balanced in terms of looking at, let's maybe not have a drink until midday. Or let's maybe do it more socially that we go out to the pub and meet a friend for a couple of drinks and then come home. There's different ways to manage that. It's not an all or nothing approach. And it's always trying to balance up that right to freedom, that right to autonomy with that risk. Because we don't want to be neglectful or not weighing up those things. You have a duty of care, but we're balancing that fine line. So I hope that today's episode answered more questions than it potentially raised. As you can hear through all of the things that we've talked about today, there is a constant balancing act. I said that many times in the last episode about dignity of risk, but I mean it even more so when we're looking at people living with dementia. I think one of the biggest things we can do is keep checking in, keep reassessing, keep determining what's now the best option for them. 
and really try check in with ourselves. Am I acting in their best interest? Am I taking into consideration their history, their preferences? Am I putting myself in their shoes and thinking about what they would want to do without being neglectful whilst remembering I have a duty of care, but making sure that we're always considering to what that person would want and helping uphold their rights as well. As always, if you want to continue this conversation, you can find me on Instagram at The Truth About Aging, on Facebook at Navigate Age Care AU, or on my website, which is www.navigateagecare.com.au. This has been a rather lengthy episode, so I will wrap it up quickly there. Next episodes will be dropping in March on the second and fourth Wednesdays of the month. I hope you all stay well and I will talk to you again then. Okay, bye.